Welcome to the Jason Tim Podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day to come hang out and talk some hoops with Tommy and I. All hell is breaking loose in the NBA. Tommy and I had all of these notes drawn up, all these big plans for all these things we were going to talk about. And uh, now I, I think there's an outside chance we might not touch on any of that stuff and we might be stuck on, uh, on this trade the whole time. Tommy, how you doing, man? Good, man. Thanks for having me on, as always. Uh, this league, right? Hashtag this league. This is what the <laughs> NBA is at this point. Um, what I mean, what just happened? What, we, were, we were about to literally about to go on, and then all this stuff happened. So let's scrap all of it. Let's just talk trade. Let's talk what the NBA la- landscape looks like now. I'm excited, man. Holy cow. Yeah, so we, uh, I was headed into a dentist appointment, and I was messaging with Tommy, and I said that uh, that we were hoping that the trade news would come down before um, uh, before we went live, but that we would operate under the assumption that Philly would get him. Um, that wasn't just reported, because it was reported. It was reported by Mark Stein that they were in, in first place. But we were op- also operating under that assumption as a result of just common sense. When you would sit there and think about what the situations that each team presented – uh, as trade options, it made so much more sense to go after Ben Simmons if you were Houston because Ben because Ben Simmons has been playing so well. And there was some loose reporting from Mark Stein that Ben Simmons was on the table, uh, namely him and Tyrese Maxey, and that they would attempt to get a third team involved to ditch uh, Tyrese Maxey in that trade so that they could keep some depth. But Ben Simmons was on the table. And, I mean, my first impression from this, from the, from the start, is that clearly Philly took him off the table. That's my only takeaway. I don't know what you thought when you saw that. Um, I don't know if Philly took him off the table. I, I heard that – or I saw that Houston was asking for Thibault as well, uh, which obviously wouldn't have stopped me from doing the deal if, if I'm Philly. Um, it would have made reworking the roster harder around Embiid and Harden, but you do it either way. I mean, with, with the actual – with what the actual trade was, maybe they did take him off the table because the Nets only gave up Levert and Jared Allen, basically, from what I'm reading. So let me quickly read the full trade. So the Rockets get Victor Oladipo, Dante Exum, Rodion's Kuruks, three Brooklyn first rounders in 2022, 2024, 2026. One Milwaukee first in 2022 that's unprotected. Four Brooklyn first-round pick swaps in 21, 23, 25, and 27. The Nets get James Harden. The Pacers get Karis LeVert and a second-rounder. And the Cavs get Jared Allen and Torian Prince. And there's a lot of things that I find there to be interesting. Because first of all, um, I'm surprised Houston didn't want Jared Allen. Um, just, just as a matter of depth, I think they, they got absolutely bullied at the center position yesterday. And I think he's just honestly a better player than DeMarcus Cousins right now. And that would have been an interesting player to try to get out of that. The, the Olo Depot thing, he's just not as good of a player as, as Ben Simmons is. So I just, the, my, my basic common sense points me in the direction that Ben Simmons was taken off the table, probably at the last minute as Houston was being, uh, a little bit unreasonable with their demands. And then Philly probably just pulled back from the table altogether. And then Brooklyn just hopped in and got this thing done. Easily possible, but we might be overlooking the fact that Fertitta probably wanted to duck the tax because they're getting, I mean, they have fans in the arena right now, but it's like 25% capacity or whatever it is. He probably wanted to duck the tax. 
and Oladipo is on an expiring. Um, they don't have to re-sign him if they don't want to. This way they can get under the tax. They're, he's not worried about his money. Um, they don't still have the hard money on the books, and they're not taking on however many years Simmons have, has left, which is like four or five at like 30 mil plus a year. Um, so this might be purely a financial move um, while also getting some fu- a ton of future first-round picks to build for the future. Right off the COVID years and, you know, keep your revenue stream going and then see what happens in the future. So, I, I mean, it could have been that, too. They just didn't want all the extra years of Simmons and they wanted Oladipo's expiring contract. That's insane, though, right? Like, wh- oh, like why oh, in the world? Like, I because if, if there's any reporting... That- Fertitta's looking at it as a money-making organization. He doesn't care about winning games. He might, all the lip services that he does, but I don't think he actually does. He's just trying to survive COVID. Half of his restaurants have gone under. Like, the guy is in finance hurting financially he had to go to trump for a loan to, to stay afloat like so i think it's more financial than anything else but that's why i mean that's why he shouldn't have gotten the team in the first place the the, the, the team never should have been sold to him in the first place so it's i mean it's a mistake by the nba dating back two years and now we're seeing the repercussions of it does this guy even like basketball like that, that that's my question honestly because no. like if <laughs> no. like because my thing is like <laughs> he's thinking it too for like too much of a cutthroat perspective here. Cause like, I'm I would be sitting here like, dude, I got Ben Simmons and John wall and I got Christian wood and like, and, and PJ Tucker. And I've got like, that's something that's, that's something. It's a fun team. At least it's, it's a very fun team. Yeah. And Simmons is a really good player who, if he ever decides to dedicate himself to actually learning how to shoot a basketball, he'll be a great player. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think the more that I think about it and I saw a couple of people say this on Twitter, I really think it was purely a financial move. You know, financial mm-hmm. move, get under the tax. Now they're not paying the taxes here. Much less worried about the financial future of the team. And they got a bunch of first-round picks. So I think that was probably the thought process from Houston's standpoint. But from a purely basketball standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Let's. So I want to get to – I want to spend a, a bunch of time talking about what Brooklyn looks like. But I want to quickly touch on this Philly situation because I joked about this with you before uh, in our last pod. I think it was one week ago or two weeks ago. Yep. I – I was worried that Philly was playing so well that they were going to play themselves out of a James Harden trade, talking them into a situation where they would think that they were fine without him. And I do believe that that's what happened. And now the, the one silver lining there, the one thing that, that Daryl Morey might be clinging to is that Joel Embiid has been awesome. And he was awesome again last night. He was hitting one-legged fadeaways. He was hitting a variety of dribble pull-ups against multiple contests in, in congested defense. He looked like the kind of guy that might be able to solve Ben Simmons' problems. So I, I may, it may be literally that simple, but I still think that they, they that they they kind of through the success that they had in these opening weeks played themselves into talking themselves into thinking that they didn't need James Harden, and I think that could end up being a mistake in the long run. It easily could be, but Embiid right now, he's he just turned 26, so he's entering his prime. 26, 12, and three assists, two blocks a game, one and a half steals, shooting 54, 38 from, the, from three, 86 from the line, had 45, what did he have the other night? This is great podcasting, just reading off numbers. Uh, <laughs> 45, he had 45, 16, 5, and 5 steals and a block the other night, last night. So he is playing absolutely incredible right now. I'd say he's probably the front runner for MVP. Maybe Maury is banking. Our best player is finally hitting his prime. 
and we think he is good enough to be the best player on a championship team. And we don't need James Harden. Mm-hmm. We don't want to mortgage our future for James Harden. Because um, Har- at the end of the day, Harden's incredible, right? I- I've said that many times. Um, I think my thoughts on Harden are well known. But he is in his 30s. And Simmons is in his early 20s. And if he can just kind of figure out how to be a better player in the half court and to better lo- utilize his skill set moving forward in the half court, he can easily be the second best player on a championship team. So Maury's betting on the future. He's betting on a team that has looked really good through the first 11 or so games of the season, even with all the COVID protocol stuff they're going through right now. Um, and in a potential matchup with the Lakers, Embiid typically gives AD a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. There's obviously still the LeBron James factor on the other side for the Lakers. Marcus Hall. That too, that too. (laughs) But but Embiid has typically given AD a lot of problems. So maybe they're just banking on Embiid being the best big man in that series by a wide margin, um, if possible, and then him carrying them to a title. So, and Ben Simmons may very well be the best possible guy to guard a Kevin Durant or a LeBron James, which is Absolutely. what you're going to inevitably have to do to win a title anyway. And it could literally be that simple. I, I do trust that Daryl Morey has thought about all this stuff. I think that, you know, I think my thing has always been that I trust James Harden for as long as you can focus him into the things that he's good at. And one of the biggest reasons why I think they nearly won the title in 2018 is because of the fact that that Rockets defense and Chris Paul, Chris Paul and his alpha dog mentality and his uh, his versatility offensively allowed uh, allowed James Harden's weaknesses to kind of be put on the back burner and they nearly won the title. And, and that's kind of been my philosophy with the with the, the idea of putting him in Philadelphia was you put him with even if you lose Ben Simmons, you're putting him with with Ibo, you're putting him with Tobias Harris, you're putting him with Joel Embiid, you're putting him with a lot of really good defensive players that 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 would allow him to kind of mimic the 2018 uh, Rockets kind of situation. And you have Joel Embiid that adds this whole other layer of offensive versatility. It's a much cleaner um, it's a much cleaner basketball fit. Uh, side by side with uh, 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 alongside James Harden. There was a lot of different things there that just made sense to me. But for whatever reason, they talked themselves out of it. And, and I'm sure it'll be fine. It could even be a culture thing. It could literally just be that they don't like Daryl Morey knows all there is to know about James Harden. And he just didn't want to deal with it anymore. It could literally be that simple. It could be. It absolutely could be. And, and the one thing I'd point to relative to the 2018 Rockets is that the biggest thing I think that Chris Paul did for James Harden was he just controlled the flow of the game, right? He, he basically knew when the time was to get Harden the ball and when it wasn't his time, Paul could literally, he still does it with Phoenix. He, he's kind of changed Phoenix's outlook just in terms of how they play the, the style that they play uh, because he is so con- good at controlling tempo and dictating possessions. Um, and I don't know as great as Embiid is, that's not really his strength, right? So if you're counting on Harden to dictate the majority of possessions, we know how that story ends every single time mm-hmm. in playoff flameouts. So maybe Maury with the, like you're saying, the breadth of information he has about Harden, he just, in terms of culture fit, and then in terms of how that guy plays down the stretch in playoff games, maybe he just didn't trust him. He said, let's just go all in on the future. We built something really nice here, and they still do have some flexibility moving forward, and they have some good young guys on the roster, including Maxi and Thibault, who definitely would have went out the door in that deal. Maybe they're just betting on that, because those guys actually fit the timeline even maybe a little bit better than Harden does. Hmm. Right? Like I said, Embiid just turned 26. He's been around for so long that you think he's a little bit older. He literally turned 26 a couple weeks ago, I think. So the guy's got... If he stays healthy, that's always the big caveat with him. If he stays healthy, 
he's probably got five, six, seven more years as one of the best players in the league. Um, and I'd rather bet on that than maybe shortening the window and um, going all in on Harden because Harden mm-hmm. hasn't proven to me that he can be the best player on a championship team. And I wouldn't even necessarily think he'd be the best player. It's it's, it's yeah. more just like, think of it this way. When James Harden was with the best teammate he ever had, which, I mean, after leaving Oklahoma City, it was in 2018 with Chris Paul, who was probably right around the 10th best player in the league at that point. And he was around an elite defense, and he nearly won a title and beat a, nearly beat a, a really talented team in, in that Warrior team. And now you'd be talking about pairing him with more of like a top five player. I had Embiid outside the top 10 before the season, but that had a lot to do with his poor showing last year. He's just a better guy now than he was then. He's in better shape. You can tell he's moving quicker. He's got a be- he's got his touch is peaking. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff there that kind of puts him in that conversation. So that, he needed that a different kind of, voice in the room too. He needed a different voice in the room too. Going from Brett Brown to doc, I think helped a lot. A huge needed, difference. Yeah. Huge difference. Yeah. And, and like, and so I think that, uh, there's no question that staying on the Ben Simmons path is better for them, you know, five years from now. Mm-hmm. I'm just a big believer in pushing your chips in the middle if you want to win. And that's just kind of, that was my ideology with it all along. But l- I do think that we should talk about Brooklyn primarily because they are the the team that yeah. infinitely becomes more interesting as a result of this. So last part that I want to hit on with Philly, I ahead. think maybe what we're seeing here is Maury learning his lessons in a way, right? Because mm-hmm. Maury was the biggest proponent, especially kind of early 2010s of, doesn't matter, acquire as many stars as possible, and then just figure it out. Figure the rest of the roster out. Chemistry doesn't matter. It doesn't, none of that stuff matters as long as you have superstars. I think five, six years ago, Maury absolutely gets this deal done, and he doesn't even worry about it. He says, we'll figure the rest out later. Mm-hmm. Now, after losing to the Warriors four or five times, after losing to the Lakers last year, a team with great chemistry, even though they came together quickly, maybe he's kind of learned his lesson saying, you know what, maybe there is something to this continuity thing to guys liking each other in the locker room, which Philly seems to have at least improved on, uh, you know, compared to years past this year. So like I'm saying, maybe Maury has learned a lesson and he's, um, he's better for it. Cause the guy absolutely is one of the best talent acquirers in the entire league. The missing piece has always been, does he actually believe in real team chemistry stuff, which maybe he does now. So mm-hmm. And it could literally be that he likes what he's seeing with Embiid, and and, and it could be that simple. So, uh, lo- so looking at the Brooklyn Nets roster at this point, so you've uh, you've now ditched two of your primary ball handlers, uh, one in an unfortunate fashion, Spencer Dinwiddie partially tearing his ACL, but now uh, you you've given away Karis Levert. So you, you're basically built on three ball handlers in Kyrie Irving, who may or may not show up, and we'll talk about that later. Kevin Durant and, and James Harden. Outside of that, there really aren't a whole lot of guys who know how to put the ball on the floor and make plays. Joe Harris is okay. I actually like him a little bit better off the ball in terms of cutting and slashing and attacking closeouts than I do as a guy who can really like make complicated decisions off the dribble. So th- that automatically becomes a little bit of a shortcoming there. And then the this is the most interesting part of this trade to me. By losing Jared Allen... And it's very clear that that it kind of seems like he was a throw-in because I don't really understand why Cleveland would want him because they already have two centers. Yeah. So I just – it may literally be – and this is another insane element to this. It may literally be that somehow DeAndre Jordan in conversations with Kevin Durant went to management and asked Jared Allen to be shipped out of town because I refuse to believe that Jared Allen – and the Cleveland Cavaliers wanting him as a third center with JaVale McGee 
and Andre Drummond was the breaking point for this trade. I just refuse to believe it because it's clear Houston didn't want him. It's clear Indiana didn't want him. And so in, in Cleveland's role in this trade was so minimal. I really, really don't understand uh, why he was given up except for ego purposes having to do with, with DeAndre Jordan. I hadn't even thought of that angle, like at least not in depth, the DeAndre Jordan angle. But Allen has been playing well recently. Like when when Jordan wasn't playing, there was a noticeable difference in how much better their defense was mm-hmm. uh, with Allen on the floor. So I guess it's entirely possible that that happened. But the, Brooklyn is essentially punting defense in every meaningful way now and just saying we are going to be, I guess, the greatest offensive team of all time. We have three of the greatest isolation scores ever. And we're just going to bank on them being to outscore, being able to outscore you every single night. And I think, you know, you being a LeBron fan, you kind of know how this goes in a way. When you have three ball dominant guys on the same team, one of those guys always gets shortchanged. With Miami, it was Chris Bosh. With Cleveland, it was Kevin Love. And those are two guys who were easily 20 point per game scorers before they joined forces with LeBron. And then after, just because of how basketball works, and how many possessions there are in a game and how many touches you can afford to how many players, they both got worked into more ancillary roles in the offense. So the basketball fit is just kind of bizarre to me. You have three guys who, well, really two guys who need the ball with Harden and Kyrie. KD can definitely play more off the ball, but it seems like part of the reason why he went to Brooklyn is he was tired of playing in Steve's Kerr's system where he didn't have the ball all the time. So I, I don't see – well, the talent is obviously there. You have three of the 15 best players in the league. You have three of the best isolation scorers ever. I don't see the basketball fit. And we talked about this a little bit in our preseason pod. I just don't see how this works on the floor. And maybe they all you know, put aside their differences and decide they're all going to buy in and play really hard and it's all going to be flowers and rainbows. But I, I just don't see it happening on the floor. And I would think that you're with me on this, um, but maybe you have a totally different view. So – well, you and I have talked to, in uh, previous podcasts about how we thought that there was somewhat of an offensive ceiling uh, where you where you start to see diminishing returns. Basically, just like the whole point of an offensive possession in the NBA is to generate a quality shot. And you're going to be able to generate a quality shot in two different ways. One, by running some sort of offensive set that gets a player in a catch-and-shoot situation or a cutting situation. And two, to have a really, really talented offensive player break down the defense leading to an open shot for someone else in a, in a less uh, a less structured way, if that makes sense. Those are basically the two ways to generate offense. And, I mean, there are, there are obviously other ways, but those are the two core ways. And so as long as you have guys who can make plays off of catch-and-shoot situations, which the Nets already had, and as long as you have guys who, who can create offense off the dribble when things break down, which the Nets also already had, there's there becomes a, a point where there's diminishing returns. Now, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant are both really good spot-up shooters. James Harden should be, but for whatever reason, he's more content to rest when he doesn't have the ball as opposed to kind of putting himself in a position where he can be a threat. So the idea is, is when James Harden has the ball and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant are on the floor, they become really, really good spot-up threats. Uh, and, and so there is some basketball sense there. But my question has always been, when, you, when you're framing that out, like a, a, what what rate do you think Kevin Durant's going to hit a wide open jump shot? He might hit it at like 40 to 45%, right? Like wide open, butt naked shot in, on the wing. 
40 to 45%. What is Tory and Prince going to hit a wide open butt naked shot on the wing at maybe 35 to 40%, you know, maybe 38 to 42%. Like the difference in a completely wide open shot for those players is a diminishing return compared to asking them to create something off the dribble. You know what I mean? Because there's just no player in the league other than like in other than guys like Steph or Ray Allen or Kyle Korver that are just hitting 70% of their wide open catch and shoot jump shots. So the bottom line is there's a diminishing return offensively. The way that their team was structured and the reason why it looked kind of interesting at times was uh, they had this really good shot blocking center in Jared Allen. They had uh, a, a lot of really, really good offensive players. Their offense was really fluid, and, and they, had, they, were, they were able to generate offense uh, against elite defenses. But there were moments when Kevin Durant would engage himself defensively, and they would look like this awesome two-way team. That was their winning formula. And they let that slip a lot in the last few weeks, which is why their record isn't super impressive, and it has a lot to do with what they did on the defensive end. But their offense is still great. I just don't really, I, I, I don't understand the, the, the risk to reward factor with James Harden as it pertains to improving what they were already doing on the offensive end of the floor and somehow improving their defense, which at this point, like, I, I don't see any situation where they don't become a worse defensive team at this point. You've got to lean on DeAndre Jordan now for a, for a long time. You've got to lean on him a lot. They do not have a lot of depth at that position without him. And, and Torian Prince is basically their only off-ball wing, you know, not counting Kevin Durant. So I, the roster all of a sudden is, like, extremely top-heavy, like yep. extremely top-heavy. The, the offense was never going to be the issue in a playoff series. We've talked about this. It was never going to be the issue. The issue was going to be can they get enough stops because they were going to score enough, you know, especially if they're getting stops. If they're getting stops, they're going to score a ton because they're coming at you in transition, and now you're, you're mismatched, and they're, they're playing however they want. But – I. In theory, if if all three of those guys decided, you know what, I'm actually going to play a brand of team basketball, it would be beautiful. And I think it could work really well. But the reality is none of those guys have ever really bought into that for an extended period of time. Durant being probably doing it for the longest time when he did it for probably a year and a half with Golden State. But besides that, none of these guys, at least in recent memory, have really bought into playing like a team heavy concept of basketball. So I, I don't know, man. I, I just don't I don't see how it makes them that much better. Cause like you're alluding to, the the offense was already really, really, really good. The issue was always going to be can they get enough stops to beat uh I mean eventually in the finals, I guess, the Lakers. And that just I mean, that looks a lot worse than it did an hour ago. And quietly, quietly the Lakers are tied for first place in NBA overall defense at, I think, like 104.7 points per 100 possessions or, uh, per hundred possessions or something like that. But yep. literally, the, the team they have to inediv- inevitably get uh, through to win the title is currently the uh, top six defense and is uh, defending at a top of the league level despite kind of showing inconsistent effort night in and night out. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, like, at, you're, you're looking at this titan on the other side of the, the NBA that's doing things the right way in a proven winning fashion, and you just built your team around. And here's, there's an interesting personality thing going on with the Nets, too, that is kind of being glossed over. So these are, these are the three stars for the Brooklyn Nets now. I've got one who's literally on a sabbatical, who believes the earth is flat, and may or may not want to retire because he doesn't seem to really enjoy playing basketball that much anymore. 
I've got two who is legitimately like fat and and has been blatantly giving up he on his like team. Papa Smurf. He looked like I, Papa Smurf last night during warmups when he's wearing that blue jumpsuit. He literally looked like Papa Smurf. Somebody called him. Somebody called him Santa Claus on Twitter the other day. I was dying <laughs> laughing. The the it's you've got a fat man who quit on his team to force a trade in our third it's start. Twenty games to get in shape, at least, at least at that least. many. He he's got to lose ten pounds, like easily minimum. And and so and then and then our third guy, the 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 leader of the group, the one who has his shit most together, is literally a guy who just left a winning situation because the 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 dynamic messed with his ego. Like that's the that's the reality. Like he would still be in Golden State if he was wired in a way that didn't factor in how much he cared about his imprint on the winning situation. So you can imagine how it might affect him if all of a sudden James Harden comes in and is averaging 35 points a game. You can, you know, it, it, like it's one of those things where like you've got a, a really, you basically have a Molotov cocktail of personalities on this team. And, and there are so many different ways it could go south. Like I, I was thinking about this. My, one of my main talking points with you today was supposed to be uh, based on the premise that he'd go to Philly was supposed to be, that I, that I thought this was a legitimate championship contender on the same level as the Lakers. That was the way I felt about James Harden in Philly. With that defense, with the give and take that Harden and Embiid could have, with the leap that Embiid is taking, and with the, uh, the proven method of James Harden in 2018 with an elite defense and a really good co-star. And, and the veteran leadership in that locker room. The Philly has great veteran leadership in that locker room now. They have mm-hmm. guys who can kind of put their foot down on Harden when he's being an idiot, right? Yeah. Like, and, and he would be the only one. Basically, because Embiid's, mm-hmm. I mean, I think Embiid, for all of his flaws, he's definitely an alpha and he's definitely a guy who wants to win. I don't think anybody ever really questions that. And so and I just I literally thought that that team was a bigger threat. And, and I'm so much less worried as someone who's not rooting for them. I'm so much less worried about Brooklyn now, even than I was before, because there was always a scenario where even if they BS through the season, that Kevin Durant would engage himself defensively in the postseason, and so would Jared Allen, and so would Joe Harris, and maybe Kyrie gets to his 2016 levels, and suddenly they become a threat. That is off the table now. That's not going to happen. Uh, They just don't have the physicality that they would need to really bring that option to the table. And and like and, and so you're 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 in this awkward situation where like they have two, they have a mid level exception that they haven't used yet, 5.7 million. They have a disabled player exception that they haven't used yet, which is, I think, right around the same amount, like $5.7 million. But there's really no players left to use, on, uh, use it for. You can't trade a player into that exception because you just blew every single draft pick you've got for the next seven years on this trade. So you, you, you're in a situation where you really can't do anything until next summer. And even then, all you can do is sign a player with the mid-level exception and hopefully find some veteran minimum guys. All the good veteran minimum guys are gone right now. They will be the premier buyout destination. That's one thing. But there is there is kind of and and I, and I, the reason why they'll be the premier buyout destination is as you and I have discussed. These guys want to play. They want minutes. So even though they may rather go to L.A. for various reasons, they'll probably go to Brooklyn because Brooklyn's going to be like, we need basketball players. <laughs> you know, we gave up all our basketball players. We need basketball players, you know, so it's, it's one of those things where th- th- they will be having to build the rest of this roster with fringe level NBA talent. And that could end up being something that limits them moving forward, like permanently. Yeah. 
who is guarding Joel Embiid in a playoff series for them? I guess DeAndre Jordan, but oh DeAndre God. Jordan has the tendency to foul, and Joel Embiid is one of the best centers in the world at drawing fouls. Maybe they're going to put Jeff Green on him. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. And Kevin um, Durant would just, he'd put him under the basket. Like, yeah, it's every just, time. there's no Embiid, way. Embiid is a big dude. Like, Anthony Davis has turned into a big guy, and Embiid kind of towers over him. Like, Embiid mm-hmm. is one of the biggest dudes I've ever seen, and he moves really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think what all of this shows, um, th- this hardened trade, at least from a Brooklyn perspective, it shows how hard it is to build a team correctly in the NBA now. Because superstars have become so powerful, right? And you're almost kind of always bending at their will that building a team, quote unquote, the correct way, you know, basically getting two superstars and putting hardworking role players around them. That's not what a lot of stars want at this point. They actually want to build the super team when that hasn't actually shown to be the most proven method of, of winning championships. It's the, it's the quick fix. It's the easiest way to say on paper, oh, we got the best team. Let's just roll the balls out and go play basketball and hope the talent wins it. But, I mean, how many teams like that have actually won championships? The teams that did, the third star, they've always had to bite the bullet and become more of a role guy. We saw it with Chris Bosh. Chris Bosh has talked about openly so many times how tough it was for him to say, oh, I was this 24-12 and guy who's one of the best players in the NBA. I'm one of the top 10 guys in the league. He goes to Miami with LeBron and Wade, and all of a sudden, he's basically a glorified role player. He's shooting spot-up jump shots, and he's a dirty work guy on defense. So, I mean, who is that guy going to be for the Brooklyn Nets? You know, and Sean Marks had, has really done a tremendous job turning that franchise around from the Billy King era, where they had basically forfeited all their picks for old Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce, um, and they had no assets left. They brought in a bunch of guys that made them an enticing option for free agents, and then Kyrie and Kevin Durant got there and they scrapped everything that made that team a super enticing place for free agents. Mm-hmm. So point being, I, I think we, there's, there's a long topic of player empowerment here that I don't really want to get into, but I, I think it's really just, it is so difficult to build a team correctly if your superstars aren't actually bought into the way to build it because they have so much power. They can just demand a trade. Uh, that's basically what Harden just did. He said, I want out because I'm not happy with the situation. And, and then Houston traded him, you know, six weeks after saying, Oh, we're going to stick it out. We're going to keep him here as long as possible. Things are going to get uncomfortable. And then six weeks later, he's out the door. So yeah, it's just, it's a really weird situation. And one that I would not want to be a part of as a coach or a management or anything like that. It's just a mess. Top well, of all. Strictly speaking about James Harden and his attitude, like we do kind of have a, a positive track record of players being disgruntled in one situation and then suddenly appearing engaged and being a totally different player once they get moved. So a couple of really quick examples, LeBron in 2018, everybody remembers that being one of the best seasons of LeBron's career. But right before the trade deadline, there was like a 10 game stretch there where he was bad. And I, and it it wasn't quite James Harden quit on the team bad, but it was kind of like openly pouting on the court bad. And he make a trade or I'm just going to tank the season. Exactly. He basically was pressuring the front office into making trades of of Isaiah Thomas and Jay Crowder and some other, some of these other guys. Uh, Jimmy Butler in Minnesota famously pitched a massive hissy fit and then went to Philly and was one of the best players on the floor in the, uh, in that series with the Raptors. There, there are all these examples of players in NBA history 
disgruntled acting out and then suddenly just getting reinvigorated by a new situation. So I am not worried at all about James Harden's play. It's more just basketball no. fit. And then also when they start losing, which I think they will a lot as a result of some of the flaws in their roster construction, how are they going to handle it as a group? When you've got Kyrie, the sabbatical guy, and you've got James Harden, the fat man who likes to quit on his team, and Kevin Durant, the guy who made his most recent free agent decision based on his ego. So those are all things that I think will be interesting to see how they, how they break down. Now, um, uh, about the, 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 the championship contender thing that you were discussing, which I think you brought up a really interesting point. You know, the, the Miami Heat uh, won a title, won two titles, and everyone thinks it has to do with this idea of the big three. And don't get me wrong, it was, very, it was a very talented team, but they won pretty much because of unbelievable defense and there being a really clear hierarchy that resulted in LeBron kind of being a solo star and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh being like subsidiary stars. That's why it worked. And then you get to the Golden State Warriors, which were they they won in in 2015 in a model where they basically had two stars, Clay Thompson and Steph. Draymond Green was a dirty work guy, but they defended extremely well. 2016, Kevin Love went off the reservation mentally. He was gone. Like Draymond Green completely erased that man's confidence, and he was a shell of himself. And it was basically Kyrie and LeBron and a team that was really defending. Then you go to the 2017-2018 Warrior teams, which were historical outliers in terms of overall talent, so there's no point in even really looking at them. Still great defenses, though. Still yeah, but great defenses. Defense. Yeah. 100% agree. But then you get to 2019, and it's like, okay, I've got Kawhi Leonard and Pascal Siakam with this awesome give and take, and then a really good defense. And then it's like... And Kyle Lowry. Don't and Kyle short, Lowry. Don't shortchange Kyle Lowry. Never shortchange <laughs> Kyle Lowry. That's my guy. <laughs> and and, and, and you're, that's a good point. But again, they, there, was a, there was this really clear hierarchy where there was one guy that ended up with the ball every time. And then you end up with this 2020 Lakers team. Exact same thing. Two bona fide superstars, unbelievable elite defense. And even in the superstars, there's a clear hierarchy in the way that they defer to each other. Like they have mutual respect. But it's like LeBron's running the show down the stretch of these games, and that's where it gets a little. Uh, that's where it gets a little bit more complicated for this Brooklyn Nets team because they're missing a lot of things in that regard. They do not have the defensive uh, presence that they need. They do not. They don't have the the defensive will and just the, the the willingness to put in that work. And then also they've got three stars, none of which have ever shown a willingness to take a subsidiary role. And none of it, which really look like guys who would be willing to be like, here, you do it at the end of games. They're going to be, there's going to be a little tug of war there. So everything that we've learned about NBA history, you know, uh, uh, has pointed to us that there's a specific way to win. And it's with, there's a, when there's a really clear hierarchy and a really elite defense. And our, our friend Bobby on Twitter always talks about how the 2015 Warriors taught us the wrong lesson. Well, I could go a step further there and say that the 2012, 2013 Heat taught us the wrong lesson because they taught us that this idea that you want to get together with your buddies that are stars and you want to win. But the reality is, is you need a really clear cut hierarchy and you need guys who do the dirty work. You have to be able to defend at an extremely high level. And that guy who's your number one, everybody needs to defer to him and he needs to be the best player on the floor in a lot of the, in every one of these playoff series, or you're just not going to win. And that's kind of like the, the, the only real pathway uh, to win. And, and we, I think we learned the wrong lesson, like I said mm-hmm. earlier. Absolutely. And 
and even to point to the 17 and 18 Warriors who were historical outliers talent-wise, part of the reason why it worked offensively is because Steph and Clay can morph into two of the best off-ball players of all time. Yep. Right. So you, you can give the ball to Kevin Durant and Stephen Clay are number one, aren't going to be mad. And number two, they are so good at playing off ball that you can make it work at the end of the day. And as great as Kyrie and KD could be off ball, they aren't those guys. They just don't move like that. Like it's not in their wiring to constantly be moving off ball and kind of just give Harden the space that he needs to work. So, yeah, from a basketball standpoint, I just really don't see how it works. They have so their next two games Well, they play the Knicks tonight. So Harden won't be available for that. And they play Orlando on Saturday. The way I'm looking at this Brooklyn team moving forward, especially if Kyrie comes back, they're going to beat the crap out of bad teams just from a talent standpoint. But I think they're really going to struggle against the good teams, especially ones that defend. Um, mm-hmm. They play the Bucks right after the Magic on Monday. Um, so, I mean, I guess we'll see how that looks. We'll see if Kyrie's even playing basketball at that point. I don't think he will be yet. I think he's still out for like at least another seven days. Um, so maybe it'll actually look okay with just Harden and, and KD because there will be some type of pecking order and hierarchy. There's just two guys that need the ball. So it might actually look kind of clean. But once Kyrie comes back into the mix, yeah, I mean, if that even happens, um, I think it's going to get pretty ugly pretty quickly. Yeah, and there's so you look at their closing lineup, which is going to be basically Kyrie, James Harden, Kevin Durant, Joe Harris, and DeAndre Jordan. And maybe there's a version of that where they can go small and uh, and, and and bring in uh, uh, um, Torian Prince or somebody like that. Jeff but, Green, Jeff Green, Jeff Green, Jeff Green. Yeah, Jeff Green. Yeah. Clear, he seems to be the one that Kevin Durant trusts the most as well. I and think that would probably be the closing lineup. It'll be the it'll be their big three. It'll be Harris and Green because mm-hmm. they can tell themselves that Durant's enough to protect the rim, and they should be able to get enough rebounds because I guess Harden's physical too, and so is Green. But either way, it's it's a weird lineup. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's a lot of shooting in that lineup. Um, James uh, or Jeff Green is a very inconsistent shooter, but he also kind of has this weird history of making big shots in playoff games. So mm-hmm. there, there's that part too. Uh, the, the the question is is like if you can theoretically get Kevin Durant to defend at his peak, and you can theoretically get Kyrie Irving to defend the way he did in 2016. And you can theoretically get James Harden to defend the way he did in 2018, which was literally just not completely be a net negative. If you can get those things, there's a version of this story where it goes well. My question would just be, you know, given the fact that the best indicator of future performance is past performance, what evidence have we seen that shows us that these guys are going to be willing to reach those levels again? Especially when you consider the fact that like, you know, Kevin Durant has always in his head fought this internal battle about whether or not he wants to to devote his energy on the defensive end. What about adding a player as talented as James Harden is going to wake that up even more? If anything, it's going to get worse because he's going to trick himself into thinking, well, now I really don't have to do this because we just have all this talent. And I, I don't know. I just I there are versions of this story where it goes well, but I feel like there are many more versions of this story where it doesn't go well. Sure. I mean, what you'd basically be banking on is the outlier seasons in their career, not the norm. Mm-hmm. Right. So you would bank on them, all of them tapping into something that they had in seasons where um, they actually committed to the defensive end and they all work really hard and they all kind of, I guess, respect one another for lack of a better term. And they really, they truly commit to winning a championship, which would mean they're playing hard defensively and giving maximum effort most nights. Um, it can be done. I think uh, the talent is there defensively. Like Kyrie is a fairly good defender when he wants to be. Durant is one of the better defenders in the NBA when he wants to be. And Harden for all of his warts is actually a pretty sturdy guy 
in the post. Like he could he's big he could, and strong. Yeah. yeah, he can easily guard fours and fives if they need him to. Um, hmm. Especially if if he is doing less on offense, that would be the real key that they all realize. Okay, I actually don't have to do as much now. Um, I can relax a little bit more on offense and I can work a little bit harder on defense because I have these other two guys who I know can create a shot at any moment in time. Right. So it would be all of them trusting each other and all of them being willing to take a step back and, and commit to winning basketball. But uh, almost everything in their careers has told us that is not really the route they go. Um, And it just, I mean, it doesn't seem like Kyrie's in a headspace to do that at all. I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong. And all, the, all of his teammates seem to love him, right? All indications from Kyrie's teammates, for the most part, are that they actually really like the guys, at least in Brooklyn. So hmm. I could be totally off base here. Um, but the last week has not looked great. So this is a perfect time to segue into the Kyrie thing. And you bring up an interesting point because I think there's a huge difference between likability as it pertains to you know what they think of him as a man and what they think of him as a, as a teammate. And you know, and this has been the hardest part that I've had, um, you know, like – there's no doubting the fact that, that Kyrie Irving is an artist and that's the way he views himself. He views himself as an artist on the basketball floor, on the basketball court, who's performing for us. That's the way he views it. Um, but there, there is a harsh reality to it that, uh, that it's also a job, you know, and, w- uh, when you are trying to run an operation like a basketball team, especially when you have championship aspirations. This is not, you know, the Oklahoma City Thunder where it's like, hey, we're coming to work here and we're kind of building culture, but really we're building for 10 years from now with all these draft picks that we have. It's like, no, no, no. Like Kevin Durant left to come win a title. Like Steve Nash took this job because he wanted to try to win a title. Like a lot of these guys, like, you know, uh, uh, a lot of these guys are going to be looking at the situation and coming to work every day with the goal of winning a title. And there's, as you and I both know, as team, as guys who have rooted for recent champions, like there's a process to that every day. There's an effort level and a consistent focus that you have to bring. There's continuity. There's all of these, there's chemistry is a huge part of it. There are all these different things that you have to bring to the table consistently over the course of a season to build yourself into a team that can contend for a title. There are just not a lot of examples in NBA history of teams who BS their way through the season and then suddenly win a title. It just doesn't happen. So my question would be, you know, like I understand the 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 I understand the ideology behind like giving Kyrie his space and respecting his opinions and understanding that he's, you know, dealing with some mental health stuff and understanding that, you know, he's he's off like kind of discovering himself or whatever it is that he's doing. I understand that. But there is a harsh reality of what the team is trying to do. And, and at what point, at what point is it time to hold him accountable for that? Because again, I have no problem with, with Kyrie deciding that now is not the time to play basketball. But if that's the case, he can't be wishy-washy about it. He needs to get out. And if he's going to get out, like send everybody a text and be like, listen, you know, guys, I can't play this year. The virus scares me. I'm pissed off about stuff going on in the country. I don't know what the deal is. I can't be here. I'll come back next year. But next year, I'm here to win a title. Like, next year, I'm taking this seriously. That's fine. But, like, how how do you walk back into the locker room next week and be like, okay, guys, I'm here now. I'm ready. Like, like when they've been working their butts off and trying to build championship habits. Like, it just it just strikes me as deeply disrespectful to what they're trying to do. It strikes me as flaky. It strikes me as 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 a person who's so wrapped up in themselves 
that they're completely unaware of the way their actions impact the people around them, including one of your best friends that you just swayed at an all-star break into coming to joining you in Brooklyn. And I, I have a huge problem with his behavior, even though I can acknowledge the fact that he may have his reasons for why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and question the guy's reasoning for doing what he's doing at all. I mean, that is not my place. Look, it, I understand him being frustrated about the way, the direction of our country and the way that COVID has impacted all of us because of the response at a federal level that was so bumbled. It's absolutely – the fact that we're still in this situation is patently absurd. And that's – I mean, that's really all I'm going to say about it. And I understand being frustrated by the shit that went on at the Capitol – uh, last week. Like I get all of it. I really do. But at the end of the day, you have to be accountable to the people in that building, mm-hmm. right? Those are the people that you're going to work with every day. I, look, man, I, I stopped playing basketball in my mid twenties. I understand. I, and it was kind of a personal choice that I made. I could have went and played some small time pro basketball, but I was like, eh, I'm kind of done with this. Honestly, mm-hmm. like I'm ready to move on to the next chapter of my life. Like it is not, abnormal to go through like an identity crisis in your 20s and it seems like that might be what he's going through right mm-hmm. he's really kind of going through this path this path of self-discovery which is great like more power to him but kind of like you're pointing to you have to at least tell the people in that building and maybe he has at this point but all indications are from like steve nash and sean marks that he isn't really even communicating with them and like I don't, number one, know how, like you're saying, you walk back into that locker room and your teammates respect you. And even if they're saying they do publicly, there's definitely a little bit of like, all right, screw this guy. Like he just comes and goes as he pleases. And he's not really putting in the work every single day to buy into this process. And number two, I I don't know from a league wide perspective how you sell people on this product when stuff like this is always happening, mm-hmm. right? Like guys just kind of going, like it is, it is so detached from reality to expect people to buy into your product when people have been going to work with COVID issues. And I'm not saying it's right with, with COVID being present and all this stuff going on in the country. People have been going to work with this for months and, and have not been really compensated in any way by the government when they weren't going to work. Right? Like there are people with like true, true struggles going on in the country. And the fact that, that you're complaining about having to go work in the NBA, like, come on, man. Like the casual fan, like the person that's going to work at a construction plant every day or the social worker who is helping the, the person who just had five people in their family die from COVID because they don't have the proper health care. Like, but you're complaining about going to play NBA games. Like, dude, come on. You, I don't understand how you expect sympathy at that point. Like, I'm not going to be sympathetic towards that. And neither are most like regular people. Like it, it is just, he, and Kyrie has put his money where his mouth is with a lot of this stuff, right? He, he's sitting in on, on Congress sessions with, with senators. He's, he's donating a lot of money. So like he is doing stuff behind the scenes that, that is happening, but publicly, I don't understand how he expects sympathy from anybody when there's people who have been hit so hard by this thing. And, and he's just kind of brushing it off nonchalantly from a PR standpoint. It, it just, like you're saying, it comes off as incredibly disrespectful. Um, and, and to wrap it all up, I'm not mad at Kyrie, the person. I totally understand what he's going through. I really do. Like, I've gone through it. Like, I, I've gone through the point where I was like, my whole identity was wrapped up in basketball, and now I'm in this weird spot where I'm not doing anything basketball-involved anymore. I, I get it. I get that part. But as a teammate, I would be absolutely furious with the guy. Like, hmm. I, I would want to take his head off. Like, dude, you can help us win a championship. Be here. Like, help us do it. So, well, that's the most frustrating part about Twitter, uh, Twitter uh, conversations around this too. Cause it's like, 
it's like, okay, Kyrie does something that is completely deserving of criticism in the sense yeah. that he basically goes AWOL on his team for a certain amount of time, didn't communicate. Even when he did communicate, he won't tell them when he's coming back. And, and it, in there in the middle of the season, and he's basically violating his player contract. So that's, that's, that's thing number one. And he is being fined for it. He's not, he's not getting paid. So from a financial standpoint, they are, I guess, handling it correctly. Yes. But so that in, income people like you and I who go, Hey, like this thing Kyrie's doing isn't great. And then all these people come jumping down your throat and they're like, he's actually a good guy. He's given all this money. He's done all this. And it's like, dude, I didn't say anything about who he is as a person. I'm not saying he's not a good person. I'm not saying he hasn't been extremely generous. And like, I saw a thing that he like covered all the WNBA player salaries during the last year. That's awesome. That's great. However, that does not make him immune to criticism. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Like it's like it, it, he, should, he should get our sympathy in this situation, mm-hmm. especially when it looks like he's just compared to the the plight of like the normal American person right now. He, he's doing fairly well. Mm-hmm. He's doing extremely well, and and so I think this is a good time to segue into the COVID stuff because I think you brought up an interesting point, and it's something that has been driving me nuts. Because you know there, I think there is a disconnect between the way NBA Twitter feels about COVID in the way that basketball players feel about COVID the, the, in the, in, for the most part. I think in, you're specifically in, talking yeah. like media types here, the way media types feel about COVID versus how yeah. the players feel about it. Yeah. For, so for instance, like the, the reality is, is that, yeah, there are some of you out there that can lock yourself in your house and never, ever go outside and never, ever risk the virus. But the vast majority of people out there, and I'm not even talking about the crazy dude who's going through Walmart not wearing a mask and, and accosting a security guard. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like normal people. The vast majority of people, you know, we wear our mask in public. You know, we avoid large gatherings. You know, we, we, we do our best, but we kind of live in a gray area. We do take some risk. You know, maybe it's you sure. occasionally go to the gym or you occasionally go to a restaurant. Or, or for me, like I was playing pickup basketball. Like we all have our things that we did because we're humans. And, yep. and, it's, and, and not, it's a lot easier to say on Twitter that you think that you should never take a risk than it is to actually never take a risk in real life. And that's the way these NBA players are. And it's the biggest, and maybe you can kind of, maybe you'll agree with me. Maybe you won't. I'm interested to hear your thoughts. But the truth is, is like I have had absolutely no understanding of how anybody on Twitter could sit there and say, Oh, they need to stop the season. Like what that ideology is or or what their reasoning is, because what, what I, what is so flabbergasting to me and is that they're so naive that they think that if they stop the season, it would stop COVID from spreading through the player pool. Like these guys, literally, if they were left to their own devices, the vast majority of them would be out there doing reckless stuff, just like all of us are. And so the reality is, is like, and they'll go like, oh, you're playing basketball, you're sweating on each other, you're breathing on each other. It's like, that is true. But you know what else is true? They're playing basketball against people. They're breathing on people who have been tested for COVID twice that day. Okay. And I I used to get into these arguments with people before the bubble that would say something along the lines of like, you know, like, oh, how dare you say that the bubble is safer than the real world? That's ridiculous. And I would be like, uh, yeah, it is because no one in the real world is actually doing the things that the people on Twitter are asking them to do. They're not doing them. And guess what? I, I, I was fortunate to be right in the sense that there were zero cases of COVID inside the bubble. But there's a similar thing here on a lesser scale uh, on, or on a grander scale, I should say. Like 
the reality is, is that like playing basketball under these circumstances, if they obey the protocols is actually a lot safer than what these guys would be doing in the real world, where half of them would be playing pickup basketball with strangers. And the other half of them would be going. They were were playing basketball, but they were strangers. Exactly. And, and, And so here's the thing. If you want to stop playing because you don't want to risk it at all, that's fine, but don't tell me it's because of COVID because that's not why. Yeah. If you want to stop playing, it's because you don't want to deal with the protocols, yep. which is fine. That's also fair. You are more yep. than welcome, George Hill. You are more than welcome, Kyrie Irving. You are more than welcome to not have to deal with the protocols. It's mentally taxing, I'm not sure. Paid. You're yeah. not getting paid if you do that. You're not getting yeah. paid if you do that. I don't want to tell you. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it is very mentally taxing. Like, I haven't had to go through that. Right. I haven't had to go through getting tested twice a day and kind of always being under surveillance. And I could see how that would not only be very stressful to a normal person, but especially to a black American in this country right now with the past history of this country. Like I get all of that like that. It's not it's not great, man. It isn't. But if this if they want to continue getting paid and they want to continue playing basketball, this is kind of the way it has to be for the time being. And it's not their fault. It's not the NBA's fault. It's our federal government's fault for not handling this correctly. But yeah, I, I really hadn't thought about it from the angle of if they stop the season, these guys will just kind of do whatever they want, but they will. Like, COVID cases won't stop. The only way... Look at Kyrie Irving. Yeah. yeah. George Hill recently threw a big party, someone was telling me on Twitter yeah. the other day. Like, the only way to do it is you stop the season and everybody kind of gets vaccinated, right? That That would be the way you do it. And I don't want to delve into all of that because there is a lot of dark history with vaccinating African-Americans in this country. And that's not something that I, I feel comfortable touching on. So I'm not going to get into that, but that would be the only way that you stop the season for a certain period of time. You're like, okay, everybody's going to get vaccinated or at least anybody that wants to can get vaccinated. So at the very least we are curbing the spread to a huge degree. Cause I believe it's like, if 75% of a certain population, you know, of the population gets vaccinated, then we're like super on our way to herd immunity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's much easier to stop, the spread essentially. Um, but yeah, I, and they, they literally prepared for this too. They literally said they they didn't sit down at a table and go like, Hey guys, we're going to play basketball. Hope it goes well. It's like, no, they sat down at a table and they said, Hey, guess what? A bunch of you are going to get COVID. We're going to end up having to postpone games. So we're going to do half the schedule right now. And then we're going to do the other half after so that we can make up for lost time. Like, like we're going to expand rosters. We're going to do all these different things. Oh, we're going to expand the playoff pool so you can get in as a 10 seed. So yeah, if you happen to have really bad COVID luck and you end up down on your luck in the standings, there's plenty of time for you to come back and get into that 10 seed so you can fight for a spot. Like this was all planned for. And like, it just is like, it's, it's textbook Twitter. Because someone comes out and tweets something and then all of his buddies and his friends are patting him on his back and cheering him on on Twitter. And I just want to be like, look, like I, I am not anti-COVID guy. I yeah. had COVID. COVID yeah. knocked me on my ass. I, I, I am a believer in what it is. That has nothing to do with the fact that I'm willing to acknowledge the realities of the way society views COVID, mm-hmm. which the, the society views COVID. Like, the society views COVID different than the way Twitter views COVID. That's just the reality of the situation. And if you give those players the freedoms of being outside of the season, outside of the protocols, they're going to run crazy. And it, like, like but Brian Windhorst said the other day uh, on his podcast that, uh, that already over 30% of the league is expected to have had COVID judging from positive tests. That's not even counting people who are asymptomatic. So what that means, that's more than the general public from what I understand. So it's very clear in statistics that these guys are picking up COVID faster than the average person in America. 
So like, I don't know what else to tell your you. Your average 20 something, especially a 20 something who's in shape. I'm 29 years old. Like a lot of my friends are not adhering to anything. ever. <laughs> like they don't care because a lot of their friends have gotten COVID and every single one of their friends who have gotten COVID has been just fine. Hmm. Right. We were put in this situation by a government that mismanaged the situation. Everybody after a while was like, you know what, man, I can't stay locked in my house for another six months. I'm hmm. sorry. Like I can't mentally, I can't do this. This is more taxing on me mentally than anything else. So I'm going to take the risk. And if I get it, then I get it. It won't be great. It, it probably won't be fun, but I'm going to take that risk. And hmm. NBA players, if anything, they feel more invincible. These guys have millions of dollars. I can do whatever they want at any point. Everybody has always told them they're great. What would stop them from doing whatever they want right now? Like, and, and they have giant egos about their bodies. They think their bodies are like machines. Yes, exactly. Mm. Like, I, yeah, it's just the moral preening on Twitter can just get very, very annoying. Like, it's ridiculous. It's you're, literally you're not, so. You're not floating. You're not floating above everybody else, man. Like, you can sit here and act like you're not doing anything. I'm sure you're you're attending small gatherings with your friends and doing stuff that isn't by COVID protocols. Like, I know most of you are. Don't lie to yourselves. Mm. Like, it's, yeah, I stopping the season really wouldn't do anything to help. Like I said, unless the unless the plan is to get a lot of people vaccinated, then it probably would help, right? Mm. Then then you can say we're going to stop it, and that's why we've we built in this back into the schedule where we can reschedule stuff, and every a lot of people are going to get vaccinated, and we will be better for it. Mm. Um, so I'm just, I'm just yeah. a big believer in like in like I think you need to acknowledge emotions in the way they can impact people. But I think strictly with decision-making, it's very important for somebody in the room to be practical. Yeah. And, and it's always been my, it, it's, you know, it works great in my marriage because my wife tends to react to things a little more emotionally and I tend to react to things a little more practically. And then we try to hear each other out and meet in the middle. And it's like, it's like it, someone in the room has to raise their hand and be like, uh, these guys are literally going to go straight to the club if we release them from the protocols. You know, it's, it's, it's someone in the room has to, to, to talk that way. And then for the record, this whole season is taking place as a result of practicality. It, there's, there's no reason in the world they should be playing basketball right now. They, uh, um, there's no fans. So they're, they're not having fun in that regard. The protocols suck for these guys. Cause they're a lot more, you know, uh, constrained than they would be in their normal lives. And they're playing under like the, a, a condensed schedule. And there's just, there are a million reasons for them not to be playing except for one gigantic reason why they are. And that's money. They all came to the table and they sat down and they said, Hey, do you guys want to skip the season or you, uh, or do you, or uh, and risk losing all that money? Or do you want to try to make this work? And literally all of them were like, oh, let's make this work. I want you to get have it money. both ways. You can't have it both ways. You can't, you can't say, have it oh, both ways. We, we want our money, but at the same time, we don't want to take the risk because we're all taking risks right now to make money. Like every single person almost in the entire country is taking some type of risk every day to make money. So it's just the reality of the situation of a bad federal government. The, the last thing that I'll say about COVID is that a lot of the stuff that the league is doing right now is, and I've said this on Twitter, it feels more optics than anything else. Like if you're allowed to have two guests on the road, why aren't those guests tested? Somebody tell me why we're not testing those guests. Like that is the easiest way to start. Because they know they would get COVID if they test. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like it, it is the easiest way to, to spread COVID throughout the league. And they know, I think they know how pissed the players would be if, you know, you invite a girl over or you just want to have, you're on the road, you're in 
the city that you're from and you want to have a friend of the hotel and they test positive for COVID, they already can't go to the clubs. They already can't go anywhere. So now you're telling me I can't even have a friend in my room because they have COVID. I, I think they're they're trying to avoid just ultimate backlash from the players. But it's like if you actually want to stop COVID, then you're going to have to test those people too. But I think ultimately most of these guys don't really care if they get COVID. They don't really care. They think they're going to be fine because most of the people that they know that are in their age range that have got it are entirely fine after a couple of weeks. Hmm. And so, and like, I, I really think that um, people sometimes are over dramatic with, especially like a George Hill type uh, with his quotes from last night, people are over dramatic about the reality of the situation because like, this is not the bubble, you know, cause in the bubble, in, in when the bubble was being planned, there was no hope on the horizon. There was vaccines were at least six months off at that point, if not more. Like everything was, it was so everything was so like vague and distant, and there and there was no real. It was like I guess we're going to try to do this, but like things are really shitty. They didn't even right know now. the bubble was possible. Like they didn't yeah, even exactly. know they were able to they were going to be able to pull this off. And there were all sorts of people on Twitter mad about the bubble. Why are you even doing this? This is putting people at risk. You're not going to be able to get this to work. This is silly. And it's like, and all those people were just your textbook people on Twitter who were mad and wrong, you know? But anyway, like my frustration with the bubble was that I didn't think they were being strict enough with the guidelines. I thought they were being a little bit too loose, but I, Oh yeah. And I, and I did, I agreed with that. Cause I thought that it was, it was bad that they were letting like hotel workers come in that were not, that yeah. were uh, not tested. There, there was definitely some stuff. It wasn't perfect, they but probably, they did a pretty damn good job. They probably knew more than we did too in terms of spread because the more that we learn it's like you have to be exposed for like a good amount of time to actually mm-hmm. get it so they probably weren't super worried about like a player coming in quick contact with a with a hotel worker and and contracting it because it doesn't really happen like that yeah and so the, the but the reality is is like hey george hill i'm not asking you to lock yourself in your house for the next six months that's not what i'm asking you i'm asking you for at least two weeks while things are really bad to be especially careful and uh, now that we realize that the season is on the brink, we're going to start really digging into this vaccine thing to see if we can acquire it in a private manner or if we can speak to government officials about, you know, uh, uh, demonstrating the vaccine for the public or whatever it is. You know, we're going to work on this. But but here's the thing. It's January 12th or whatever it is, January 13th. And uh, probably around like Fauci is on the record that the general public will start getting the vaccine in March, end of March. And yep. now it may, it may take six months to vaccinate the whole public. But at that point, optically, uh, the league can jump in and get it because at that point they are the general public and they can do things like, OK, we're vaccinating, we're vaccinating all our players and we're setting up two vaccination centers in each market or whatever it is. They can I think do. They should do. I think, I think that should be part of it. Right. If they're going to maybe if they're going to jump the line, they say we're going to set up vaccination centers at our arenas or somewhere in the city to where we can help disenfranchised communities get access to this thing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so, so the reality is, is like, I'm, I'm asking George Hill, like, Hey dude, I need, I need two months. Okay. I need you for two months to do something that is still way better than the vast majority of Americans are dealing with and just suck it up. And then everything's going to go more or less back to normal, not completely back to normal, but then we're going to start having fans in arenas and you can actually go to a restaurant because you're going to be immune. And there are going to be all of these different things that are going to, uh, that are going to get better. And, and, and so, and, and to me, that's where it gets so frustrating with their attitudes about this, because it's like, this is for the players who actually went through the bubble where it was like 92 days or something like that, where they were in the, in the bubble, like this is a way, way, way easier version of that. 
and you've got guys and you've got guys complaining. It's, it, it just I, I'm and, and I'm pretty sure George Hill's on the four year seventy million dollar contract. So it's like he's not underpaid by any stretch of the imagination. So I just it strikes me as a really tone deaf. It, it strikes me as like like someone who just is really like lacks self awareness and and honestly like because here's the thing, dude. Like hey George, it does suck. And that does suck that you can't go see your family. But like the reality is, is that's something that literally everyone is dealing with. I, I there's not a single person who's looking at their current life circumstances and doesn't think, Ooh, this kind of sucks. I wish it would go back to normal. You yeah. know, I, I haven't really seen my parents or hung out with my parents in six months. And my parents are like incredibly important, important people in my life. Mm-hmm. All I've been able to do is like go to their front yard and sit outside and talk to them with a mask on for like, mm-hmm. like yeah, it's, it's, it's we are going man. through it. It is not ideal. Like it isn't. And George Hill, by all accounts, is like a really good dude. Like was huge part of like the protests in the bubble, and like could be like a community organizer of some type, and somebody who like really puts meaningful action behind like his words, right? Um, so like I don't want to come down on like George Hill like he's a bad person, but I think it's I think really what it is. It's really hard to see the forest through the trees right now, right? Like the end is somewhat near. At least like we should be able to return to normal life hopefully by like late spring, early summer, 2021, something relatively normal. You know, I don't know how long it'll take for things that be actually normal again, maybe never again. Um, but like the end is near, like you're saying, it's going to be a couple months where it's still going to really suck. And they're not in a situation that anybody else is in right now. Mm. And, and their situation is mostly better. Um, so I think like I touched on earlier with Kyrie, it is just, it is like, I understand where they're coming from. I really do because it does suck, but it, you're not going to get sympathy from most people. And that's the reality of the situation. You, like you're asking people who are making like way less money than you and have access to way shittier healthcare than you do <laughs> to, to like, to feel sympathetic for you. Like, it's like, dude, I'm just, I got my own stuff going on right now, man. Like I just, all I want for the next couple of months is to make sure my mom doesn't get COVID. Cause if she does, it's not going to end well. Like, And that's really that I think about that every single day, every single day. Mm. And, you know, we my parents have good health care. But who knows if if she's in a position to where the hospitals are impacted right now in Southern California. Like if she has to go to the hospital, maybe she doesn't even get a bed. Mm. And if you're an NBA athlete, you can probably get your 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 mom, your dad, whoever, a bed of some type. You can get them the correct care. Like it's just I don't know. Uh, It's a really shitty situation for anybody. But the, the complaining is not going to garner any sympathy from almost anybody in the country, unless you're on Twitter, apparently. For sure. Yeah, exactly. For sure. And, and for the record, I, 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 I don't want to – I'm not coming down on George Hill as a person. I think that's something that gets glossed over really often with these uh, – um, uh, with all of this discourse that takes place on Twitter. Like, here's the thing, dude. Like, like sports media and talking about sports – is all about a combination of criticism and praise. And it's pretty much down the middle because in a world where we only said nice things about people, there'd be nothing to talk about. And, and it's kind of a harsh reality of the business. Like I, it's like if I, you know, randomly by some fluke chance got offered a contract tomorrow to play for the Phoenix suns, I would understand when I signed on the dotted line, like, Hey, this comes with criticism from media and fans. Like that's just, that's just a reality of, of what the, the job. Part of why you're making all the money. It's part of why you're making all that money. 
hundred percent sure. Like it, it's, it's, it's the reality of the business. And like, and, uh, and where, where I draw the line is when people do really get into character stuff. And, and I really have, I avoid that. Like it is very rare for me to bring up someone's character, you know, as, as part of a larger discussion about who they are as a person. A lot of times I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm criticizing a specific thing that they did. George Hill, by all accounts, is an amazing guy. And I, I particularly like him because he's the kind of guy who shows up to games and his uh, team sweats. And it just reminds me of the guy from college who, like, just always wore his college gear everywhere he went, never really dressed up. Like, that That to me is like the old-fashioned hooper. Who just, yeah, that exactly. That, that was, was me, too. <laughs> like, it's the old-fashioned hooper, the guy that's like, I'm here to play basketball, man. That's what I love to do. It's what I want to do. You know, I, I slide in hoop sweats at all exactly. times. Exactly. I, I love George Hill as a player. I'm criticizing him for this one thing that he said. And it bothers me that on Twitter, it's like, it's like, it's like I said, there's a cycle. It's a vicious cycle of like someone does something, whether it's misses a key shot in a game or says something off the court. That's not super smart. You know, some people criticize him and then this army of people jump on you the other way around. And then it becomes this thing where we're like criticizing them as people. It's like, no, that's not what we're saying here. Like we're, we exist. Let's acknowledge the reality of what our, 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 not our job, but our hobby is here. We're, we're talking about sports. Like, dude, if you and I got out here and just said nice things about everybody, it'd be the most boring podcast in history. Man. Easily. You know? Easily. The thing about Twitter is everything gets taken to the nth degree, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, you, you say one bad thing about a guy and maybe the way he's acting, and it's like, oh, you think he's a terrible person, and that makes you a terrible person. It's like, mm-hmm. no. And it's the, look, I'll bring it back to my Steph Curry conversation. This is a microcosm of it all. I said, look, he might be declining. Maybe. I'm, I'm seeing some things that might be indicating that. And people took that as, oh, you think he's washed? You think he sucks now? I'm like, no, maybe he's not a top three player in the league. Maybe he's only top 10, right? It's just for whatever reason, the way that the conversation happens kind of organically on Twitter, it makes people just make the most ridiculous conclusions of all time. They just draw the most absurd things. And I think maybe because it's fun to, to point fingers and, and call people names and whatever. But uh, yeah, it's just it's the nature of Twitter. And it's always going to be like that as long as I'm on that platform. So for sure. Well, before I let you out of here, I'm going to nail you down on a, a prediction for uh, Phil, uh, for Brooklyn. What do you think is going to happen? I kind of touched on it earlier. I think they're going to beat the crap out of bad teams. Like they're just going to they're going to score 130 points and they're going to run up the score and it's going to look amazing. And people are going to be like, "Oh my god, can anybody beat this team?" They're going to run through the East and win the championship. I think they probably end up losing in like the second round of the Eastern Conference Finals, depending on the matchup. Just because, yeah. just because they're, they're not going to get enough stops. They're just not going to. It, unless, like we said, there's always a possibility, we get that outlier season defensively from all three of their superstars. Hmm. Right? If they all commit to it, then yeah, I could see them easily going to the, to the finals and winning the title even because there is so much offensive talent there. But it hmm. would take something that isn't the norm from all three of them. And putting three guys who have never really committed on that end, truly, and putting them on the same team, I don't see how that's a recipe for success at all. So my, my prediction is similar. I believe that they would lose uh, probably in the Eastern Conference Finals, but possibly in the second round. And the, the reason is really simple. In addition to them not really being able to defend, I think they're going to be an offense that is easy to stagnate when you're a good defense. So if I'm Brooklyn, if I'm Philly, if I'm Boston, any sort of like good switchy defense that's got a lot of wings that can throw that they can throw at people, yeah. they're going to be able to stagnate that offense and turn it into an isolation fest so fast. And while those, uh, it'll require 
unbelievable performances from those guys to win some of these games. And, uh, and I just don't think it'll be enough. I think like, I think that in those scenarios, when you stagnate Brooklyn and they start missing shots, then, and and then, then on the other end, they're not defending at a super high level. I think they're going to be a team that's really susceptible to big runs. And I mean, they really are at this point, like even a crazier concoction version of the, of the Clippers in the sense that like they, they kind of lack a basketball IQ overall. They're going to be easy to stagnate and force them into taking a lot of difficult shots over contests. And then they're going to have a weird kind of like mentality mix that could end up leading to some problems later on. So I, I I'm with you. I think, I think you and I are on the same page. I think they're less dangerous now than they were before the trade. In my opinion. Yeah, I agree. So uh, before I let you out of here, so um, uh, to all of you guys who have been listening, uh, uh, Tommy's going to be joining us, uh, once a week moving forward. I want to kind of like find a, a unique balance. Like I don't want to go all in on hot takey league wide stuff, but I also don't want to go all in on just really nerdy basketball analysis. I want it to be kind of like a combination of the two. And it's one of the things that we're going to be working on today. We were supposed to dive into the Pacers, the Bucks and the Suns. I would imagine we'll do them as well as some other teams next week but that's the idea and we're going to kind of you know i really appreciate the feedback from those of you who have messaged me privately and and for those of you who have messaged us on twitter like we're we're trying to build something here we want it to be something that you guys like and that you come back to to listen uh i have been so amazed i think we've had over a thousand listeners on every single one of these that we've done and uh podcast downloads in the several hundreds and and i've I've been really amazed at how this has gone but we want it to grow so we want it to be something that you guys like like i said it'll be a combination of 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 different types of things and never too much of one thing i'd love for you and i to start digging a little bit into some stuff that's not basketball related at some point not too much you want to stick to your to your to your uh you know your your passion but something that we'll we'll dive into but i'm really excited to see where this goes definitely man no same same here Give us feedback. Anybody who's listening right now, give us feedback. I'm more than open to criticism. I'm more than willing to admit I'm wrong or I'm dumb, whatever. Tell me that I'm dumb, honestly. Like, tell me and then tell me what I can do better. This is really fun. This is, I love basketball. It, it's my hobby. It's been my passion for a long time. I'm really excited to like dive into it in a fashion that isn't Twitter and, you know, something that's a little bit more long form and where we can sit here and talk about stuff for an hour, an hour and a half. So, yeah, it, it's been fun. I'm excited to keep doing these. Just give us as much feedback as possible because I think we're going to be receptive to all of it. All right, man. Have a good weekend. I am going skiing tomorrow, so I will not be back until Monday. But I would imagine you and I will be recording something on Tuesday as usual. But I hope you all have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. All right, guys. Thanks. See you, Jason.